All right, you may all be seated. <clears throat> we are continuing in Genesis, continuing in the flood narrative, and we're about halfway through. We're finishing chapter 7 next week, and next week we come to the pinnacle of the flood. It's still ramping up in these passages. If you remember, the passages we did last week and these passages form a unit. The first few verses, verses 6 through 9, give us the table of contents. And then verses 10 through 16 go and fill in more details. So we're going to look at some of those details this morning. But we're also going to do something we haven't quite done so much yet, but I think it's important to do as we look at Noah, and that's look at how he is used elsewhere in Scripture. Elsewhere in Scripture, they always refer to him as a historical figure. They plant doctrine on the fact of Noah's historical flood. And it is important which doctrines God places uh, together with Noah. So we're going to look at the past foreshadowings, what happened before Noah that uh, we see resemble here in the text, our present condition and how Noah's flood and how God protected him on the ark speaks to us in the body of Christ. And then we are going to look at how it is used prophetically. Noah, uh, the floodwaters are used as a type of baptism by Peter. Noah and his protection on the ark is used as a type of the remnant of Israel as God protects them throughout all of history. So these are very important doctrines, and they all hinge on the historicity of Noah's ark. So our main point this morning, <clears throat> the flood is a key historical event on which God hinges his promises of judgment and salvation. It is not an allegorical allegorical object lesson. It is a historical type of what is to come. And the precedent setter for global cataclysmic judgment and salvation of the righteous. And so just to review, looking at our table of contents from last week, we saw all kinds of dates throughout here. It was very specific. In fact, this is the most specifically dated event in the entire first part of Genesis. Actually, in all of Genesis, we never get so many dates. Noah was 600 years old. We know then how long after creation this occurred. And when we go through the kings of Israel and some of the patriarchs of Israel, we can find out how long ago this was. This was about 4,500 years ago that this happened. We could date it to a more specific date if I had put that in my notes, but I did not. The date's available, though, and it's able to be dated because of how specific it happened here. In fact, some people even say it started on a Tuesday because uh, they follow the calendar and they go back. Now, I'm not that confident in my own mathematics skills, but um, that's kind of an oxymoron for me, mathematics and skills. But here we have Noah, 600 years old, when the waters came on the earth. His son and his wife and his son's wife will enter with him, and also all of the animals. Now here it says the clean animals and the unclean animals, the birds and that which creeps on the ground. Those which were male and female for the purpose of continuing life after the flood, they all 
got on, and this was in obedience that all of this happened. <clears throat> and then we saw going back to the dates and filling in more dates, because that's what verses 10 through 16 do, filling in more details. It was after seven days they had been in the ark, the 600th year of Noah's life, the second month, the 17th day of the month, and on that very day, the fountains of the great deep burst open, the floodgates of the sky were opened, and rain fell upon the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. That is a lot of detail about when this happened. And it all happened on God's prophetic schedule, just as he said it would happen. And so now we come to verse 13, and we get a little more detail filled in for us about the people who entered the ark. So it says, on the very same day, again, that is the day that all of this uh, began to take place, seven days after they entered the ark, says, on the very same day, Noah and Shem and Ham and Japheth, the sons of Noah and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them, all eight of them had entered the ark. Now, in Hebrew, tense and aspect is um, a little different than in English. In your Bible, it probably just says they entered the ark, which seems like a uh, contradiction with earlier where it said they entered before seven days. But tense actually does not have anything to do with time in Hebrew. It has to do with aspect, and it's related to context. So a past tense verb doesn't mean it happens in the past. It means it's a completed action. So this is a completed action based on the context. We can see that it had already happened by that very same day. We often get a prophetic uh, completed action in the past tense in Hebrew, which speaks of events that are far in the future. And it uses the past tense because when God promises something, it is as good as complete. This is exactly as Genesis 7-7. This gives us the context so we can say that it had already happened by the time the floodwaters came. Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with them entered the ark because of the water of the flood. In verse 4, it said that this was uh, on the day God commanded them and that in that commandment he said seven more days and the waters would come. So that is the context that tells us they had already entered the ark by the time judgment came. And this leads us into our past parallels because we start to get the language changing just a bit. And remember, when Moses changes his language, um, when it's been such a consistently repeated pattern especially, we want to pay attention. What's he doing? And we see that he is paralleling here the judgment which ends the original creation with creation itself. He is working backwards. Just as earth started with uh, the Holy Spirit hovering over the waters and the earth was without form and void, so now the earth is returning to being a watery abyss. God is going to create out of that again using this ark. But he's working his way backwards, starting with man and then going through the animals. And then he will deal with what happened to the earth in our passages next week. So we want to look back and remember what is on Moses' mind 
as he is relating this event to creation. Probably forefront in his mind was the very purpose of man, because Noah is now standing in as the head of our race, something Adam was supposed to do, something that because of Adam and Adam's failures, now another needs to replace him. Ultimately, Noah will need to be replaced as well. Noah is not the final stand-in. He is a temporary means to an ultimate end of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, who stands as the new head of our race, but it is a race of regenerate believers, and we have to be born again through him by faith. But here in Genesis 1.27, we see God creating man. God created man in his own image. He was a unique creation, special, different than the other creatures created in the six days of creation. See, in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. They were both created on the sixth day. And then he blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Remember the purpose for taking uh, various people onto the ark was for the purpose of keeping them alive. Noah and his wife do not have any more kids after the ark. Only the three sons recorded that they had before are the three lines that make up human genetics today. So these three sons that came from the wife of Noah, and then the three wives of the sons, those are the four genetic strands, those four women. <clears throat> he said, be fruitful and multiply. He started with two pairs. Now he's got four pairs, but really three pairs after the ark. But he said, fill the earth and subdue it. They did not subdue it. Rather, they were subdued by creation. And he said, rule over who? The fish, the birds, and the living things that move on the earth. These come into focus in our next verse in Genesis. <clears throat> but here we have a promise to man that if he disobeys, he will surely die. Noah got a positive promise that if he obeys, he will live. The obverse of this in Genesis is if he just simply relies on God, if he obeys, he will live. And we see that life is still promised. Although the consequences of sin is death, God still steps in to protect. He protects by giving a means of life. He's going to use the woman to protect life. Where man, uh, his curse focuses on the death of mankind, the curse on the woman focuses on the life of mankind. Adam sees this and he names Eve mother of all living. Probably because of this verse, he says, I will greatly multiply your pain and childbirth. In pain, you will bring forth children. And so through judgment, if you remember, God provided a means of man's survival. Man is destined to die, but he is going to increase the rate of childbirth so that man can be sustained on the earth. Now God is using an ark to sustain life on the earth. Because ultimately, we have to get to Emmanuel.
to God with us, to the son born of a virgin who would be the new head of our race. <clears throat> that is the seed promised here. Between your seed and her seed, God says to the serpent, there will be enmity. He, the woman's seed, shall bruise you, the serpent, on the head. And he does that at the cross. And so we have similar language here in Genesis 6, 6 through 7. God says, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land. This is an uncreation. He is undoing what he did in the days of creation, but he's not going to undo it so completely that it is gone forever. But he preserves a remnant. He preserves a remnant that is faithful. In Genesis 6, 11 through 13, it says, Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. All flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Then God said to Noah, The end of all flesh comes before me. So from chapters 1 to chapters 6, chapter 7, actually next week we will see the actual language saying, Everything on the earth that was alive perished. The uncreation of earth. For the earth is filled with violence because of them, and behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. <clears throat> Man's failure ultimately resulted in judgment by destruction. But a remnant was preserved for God's glory. And we will see that repeated in Israel, that a remnant is always preserved for God's glory. But now we come to the animals. Just a few verses earlier, in verses 8 through 9, we saw a distinction. We saw them enumerated by clean animals, unclean animals, birds, and the creeps, things that creep around on the earth. <clears throat> Here the language changes just a bit. Here we have every beast after its kind, all the cattle after their kind, every creeping thing that creeps on the earth after its kind, and every bird after its kind, all sorts of birds. We have the addition of the after its kind, which reminds us of God's created order. This was the language used in creation. Why? Because they were created after their kind so that they could reproduce so that they could be productive in creation. God is not suspending his purpose in creation. He is preserving a remnant. And we also don't have the distinction here between clean and unclean animals, a ceremonial distinction. We have a creative distinction. The beasts, the wild or untamed animals, and the cattle, those animals which were domesticated, which were close to man, useful for production. God is recreating, even before he has finished destroying all the things that creep on the earth, and the birds. He is putting these as well in reverse order of creation. If you remember, the birds and the fish were created on day five, and then the creeping things, the cattle and the beasts, created on day six. It is a reverse chiasm of creation. Genesis 1.25 God made the beasts of the earth after their kind, the cattle after their kind, and everything that creeps on the earth after its kind. God saw that it was good, 
Here he's destroying because all things had become bad. All things had been corrupted to the point of becoming bad. Now moving backwards a few verses, Genesis 1, 21 through 22, day five of creation. God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarmed after their kind. And every winged bird after its kind and God saw that it was good. Now notice here, and it's repeated in the verse below, Moses doesn't name the fish here. And remember, we commented, actually, I don't know if you remember, this was more than six months ago, we commented on how odd it is that all categories of animals are named in the creation event, except the fish. I said that's going to come back, and uh, we'll see why. Because even when Moses is writing creation, he has Noah in mind. These birds, these cattle, these beasts, these creeping things, are going to need to be preserved on the ark. Just exactly what God created that's going to need saving gets enumerated even from the beginning. So that when it's saved, we can look back on creation and see this was always the plan. This was always God's purpose to save. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas. Let the birds multiply on the earth. Again, the fish are not named. They are there. They are present implicitly. But they are not named here. <clears throat> and in Genesis 6-7, when God says he is going to destroy, what does he say he will destroy? I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. The fish are not present. Why? Because the cataclysm is not going to wipe out all of the fish. Things that God created to swarm in the seas will be able to survive, though I guarantee their population was decimated far beyond even what people claim is the present situation in our oceans. Because these were hot, swirling, chemical waters, volcanic in nature. This would have been horrendous for any creature living through it. They did not escape the judgment, but they survived. But that which God brought onto the ark could not have survived without the ark. God preserved his creation. <clears throat> I have more examples there. Romans 8, 20 through 21. Why did this have to include creation? Why, if it was man's corruption, did nature have to share in the judgment? And we have to go back to Genesis 1.27 to see why. 1.26 and 1.28, rather. Because man is the head not only of the human race, but of all of creation. God's purpose was for him to rule over it. And just as we will see with the kings in Israel, eventually, if we ever get there, that the nation is also judged for the sins of the king. The one who rules over them, the one who has authority, the one who has Dominion is responsible for that which is underneath. He is held liable for their sins. They are held liable for his. We see the same principle between us and Christ. When God looks at us, he sees Christ. When God looks at Christ's righteousness, it projects onto us because he is the federal head of the church. He is the head of the body. But here in Romans 8.20, we see that if 
Creation is to be saved because creation also comes under judgment with man. Creation has to be part of that judgment. And so Paul writes, for the creation was subject to futility. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, that him is referring to God. God is placing nature under subjection to judgment in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. If we want creation saved with us, creation undergoes that judgment. Creation is washed clean in the flood. It will be burned clean in the coming judgment. Second Peter 3, 5 says, By the word of God the heavens existed long ago. By his word they were created. The earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was also destroyed, being flooded with water. What began coming out of the water was also destroyed in the same way. <clears throat> and you see, just like for Adam, the crux of the issue was relying on God. Was God's word good enough to live by? Could it be trusted? Noah had a lot of time to question whether God's word was good enough to live by, whether or not he should question it. Noah still in our text has never yet spoken. It has been God speaking. Noah is only recorded as being obedient. This stands in stark contrast to Adam. And sadly, this stands in stark contrast to Israel as well. Noah is held up in the center of this narrative between Genesis 1 and Genesis 11 as the pinnacle of faith, the pinnacle of an active working faith, one who is spurred on by faith into good works. Genesis 7:15 through 16 says, So they went into the ark to Noah, by twos all of, of all flesh, in which was the breath of life, those that entered, male and female, of all flesh, entered as God, Elohim, had commanded him. Now here, we have both uses of God's name that we've seen so far in Genesis. Elohim, which was his creative name, his name as the sovereign over creation, the one with the power to create. Just like in Revelation, when we see him as the creator, the purpose in seeing him as the creator is seeing him as having the right to judge. The one who created creation has the right to destroy creation. God commanded him with his authority. God Elohim, the Lord Jehovah, the covenant God, the covenant keeping God, closes the door behind Noah, shuts him in securely, and protects him through the flood. <clears throat> it's almost as if Moses knew what he was doing when he wrote Genesis. Noah stands in contrast to the rest of his generation. When God looked at them, he saw that earth was so wicked, so corrupt, that it needed to be destroyed. But when God looked at Noah, Noah found favor. Remember, that is the first time we have seen the word grace. 
in all of the scripture. We have seen God be gracious, but this is the first time in which it is ascribed verbally to a man. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time, and Noah walked with God. This is carefully ordered. Moses did not say Noah walked with God, so he found favor in the eyes of the Lord because he was a righteous man. No, Noah finds favor first. Noah finds grace first. Before grace, none of the cogs begin to move. As soon as Noah receives this favor from God, he is righteous. Regardless his actions, regardless his works, this is before any of his obedience in building the ark. He was accounted righteous, he was accounted blameless for an unstated reason here. We don't see the reason until we get to Genesis 15:6 and see that grace comes through faith. How did Noah find favor with the Lord? He simply believed. He trusted God when his generation did not. But Noah also walked with God. This set him apart from the rest of his generation. Not only had he believed for salvation, but he continued to believe for preservation. <clears throat> in Hebrews 11:7, we get a New Testament interpretation of the event of Noah, and we see that it was by faith. By faith, Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence, prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world. That outside of the ark would not be saved. Whatever did not enter in with him would not be saved. See, Jesus Christ does the same thing, condemning the world, by providing the one source of salvation himself. That which stands apart from the cross cannot be saved. It is condemned already because it has not believed. And he became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. Now this topples the Calvinistic doctrine of, well, the Calvinistic interpretation of the doctrine of predestination. Noah was not an heir of righteousness from birth. Noah became an heir of righteousness according to faith. He joined that party of the saved at the moment he believed, the moment he trusted God and God's promises, especially God's promise of a savior. There has never been a different way to get saved than faith. Salvation has been the same in every generation. No matter how God is working, with whom God is working, salvation is always by faith alone on the basis of grace alone, or by grace alone, on the basis of Christ's death on the cross, whether or not they knew that that was how God would complete their salvation. And Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 gives us a concise explanation of the cogs that work together to make salvation work. It says, by grace you have been saved, perfect tense, through faith. Not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. <clears throat> Noah's not boasting here. 
Noah's trusting in the Lord. Noah is saved and he is being preserved physically as well because he's walking with God. Surely if Noah had just said, no, Lord, I think there's a better way than an ark. I'll find another way. That would have been similar to what Noah did or to what uh, Adam did rather. Rather than trusting God's word when he says, if you eat this, you're going to die. He and his wife Eve saw that it was good for food, contrary to the word of God. And they decided, rather than trusting in God's preservation, to preserve themselves by a different means. And in the end, they died because of it. Not one creature outside the ark, save for the fish who weren't part of this judgment, died or not uh, survived. Not one survived, but that which was on the ark. We do this today. We try to find all different kinds of ways to save ourselves besides simply trusting in the Lord. Even after we've been saved through faith alone, we try to find other ways to do it. I trusted in the Lord and I was saved, but now I have to preserve myself by good works. Your salvation should lead to good works, but you are not preserved by them. You are preserved for them so that you can walk in them and you can build up rewards in heaven. And remember, our salvation is a gift from God. It is not a reward for faith. Faith is not something that merits reward. Faith is the life preserver we cling to. It is going to save us whether or not we believe it will. If we have faith, if we are resting on it, we continue to be preserved in a physical sense. <clears throat> Robert Dean has an excellent quote on what is going on here in Noah's life. He says, notice that the faith rest drill, which is simply a, uh, a coined term for faith working together to uh, produce good works. The faith rest drill is a means of living in the Christian life. And we'll see him uh, kind of explain a bit how it works. It's not passive, it's passive and active. Notice that the faith rest drill isn't sitting back and trusting God and waiting for something to happen. He trusts God and he gets on the ark. There is a passive aspect to the faith rest drill and there is an active aspect. If the Bible is telling us to do something, such as pray without ceasing, then we not only trust God and claim the promise, but we also keep praying. Noah trusts God to deliver him, and he builds the ark. He trusts God to provide for him, and he gets in the ark. He does according to everything that God commanded him. This is the act of obedience. This is the faith rest drill. <clears throat> We don't lay on our couch and say, Lord, you want to bless me? Just bless me. No. He tells us how to function in the body. We're obedient to do that. And he gives us the strength to do that. Sometimes we don't see how he's going to do it before we start. For 120 years, Noah was building the ark and may not have fully understood how God was going to preserve this giant structure in the flood. I mean, he could have been just as skeptical as the skeptics today and said it would never float. Well, God told him to build it that way. 
God must have told him to build it that way because that's what would float. Noah just trusted God. But he didn't lay back and say, well, God wants to save me. He'll build the ark. He'll figure it out. I'm going to go about my life, living it the way I want. If God wants to save me, he'll, he'll build the ark. No. God says do something, we do it. We look in scripture, we see all sorts of things that we are supposed to be doing in the body of Christ. And we trust him that in doing it, we remain in fellowship, that he is going to work that together for good. That kind of brings us to our present parallel. And this I, I want to bring up more because it's misused. Uh, because at a certain point here, Peter will say that we are saved by baptism. I want to show you how that's working here in 1 Peter 3. So 1 Peter 3.13, we get a little bit of the context. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. Now, these are words that Noah could have lived by in his day. For 120 years, he's a preacher of righteousness, with no one getting on the ark with him. He was probably ridiculed. He was probably scorned for having faith in something he couldn't see, for having faith in something that they couldn't see. I wonder if this was on Peter's mind as he wrote this, and that's why he ties it back to the flood in a few verses. He says, but sanctify Christ, that is, set him apart, make him holy. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence, and keep a good conscience. So that in the things in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. The context here is proper walking in the body of Christ. Proper sanctification. Spiritual growth. Spiritual warfare. How to be prepared for the flaming darts of the enemy. Verse 17, it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than doing what is wrong. For Christ also died for sins once for all and just the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. Peter is a master of segues who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during which the or during the construction of the ark in which a few that is eight persons were brought safely through the water corresponding to that corresponding to what corresponding to the water it is the closest reference which agrees with that in person and number corresponding then to the water Baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal or a pledge to God for a good conscience. Remember back in verse 16, this had to do with walking in the body of Christ, staying in fellowship, not salvation, spiritual. 
appealing to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I like how Tom Constable explains this one. Baptism saves Christians now as the water that floated Noah's Ark saved him and drowned his unbelieving antagonists. It does not save us by cleansing us from defilement, either physically or spiritually, but by announcing publicly that the person baptized has placed his or her faith in Jesus Christ. Noah, for hundreds of days, stood out as a beacon over the waters. That beacon falling on deaf ears, just as it had for 120 years before his time and during his time, but we look back and it does not fall on deaf ears today. It had a future purpose. Baptism now delivers, it saves us from the consequences of siding with the world. This is fellowship issue. Out of fellowship, in fact, someone moving so out of fellowship that they are no longer functioning together with the body of Christ does not separate them from the body of Christ eternally. It separates them temporally and physically. This is that scary issue of church discipline where you are cast out of fellowship for repeated and unwillingness to repent. If you are living in sin, if you have no desire to be in fellowship with God after you're saved, you are delivered over to Satan. Not in your spirit, but so that your spirit might be preserved. You're delivered over in your body. The longer you live in sin, the more spiritual it affects it ha- has on you. A Christian continues to live on this earth rather than just being zapped out of here for the purpose of functioning together in the body, being a light to the unbelieving world. When we are removed, when the whole church is removed at the rapture, the restrainer, the Holy Spirit, is also removed and evil will prevail. The restrainer in us, not us ourselves, are the restrainer. Is that which holds back the tide of evil. You want to be in fellowship with the Holy Spirit. You want to be part of that. And baptism is a public declaration of that. Baptism is the evidence that the person has made a break with his or her past life and is taking a stand with the Savior. It is a pledge springing from a good conscience. So this passage in 1 Peter is not saying that salvation comes by baptism. Baptism is a declaration of your salvation so that you can walk in proper fellowship because this is something we have been told to do as Christians. Just like Noah was told to build an ark, we are told to be baptized as a testimony to what has been done spiritually in us. Romans 6.3 corresponds this baptism, or corresponds, uh, here, Romans 6 corresponds to this. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ, Jesus, have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, 
So that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. This is life looking forward to our glorious new bodies. But this is the newness of life presently available in the spirit to the believer. Baptism has a present effect. Baptism in the spirit enables us to walk in uh, that newness of life. Ephesians 2 gives us a bit more detail here. Among them too, that is the, uh, the unbelieving, among them we too formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. Before we became, uh, before we had the inheritance of righteousness through faith, just like Noah, we were children of wrath, just like Noah before faith, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And it was at that time that he raised us up. This is past tense as well. Baptism is past tense. Our death together with him at the cross is past tense. He raised us up and he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ, our security together with him, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Again, he repeats, for by grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of work so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship. We are his work created in Christ Jesus for good works, not because of good works, for the purpose of walking in the newness of life that he has prepared for us. We are created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we might walk in them. The works of Noah were prepared before him as well. And when he walked in faith, he walked in those good works. He was enabled to do it. By continuing to trust in God, he actually succeeded. His obedience was working together with his faith. <clears throat> now this baptism that we all have in the church is something unlike what God has done in any other people. This is unique to the church. This is not something he gave to Israel. This is not something he will give to the tribulation saints. This is for the church from Pentecost to the rapture. 1 Corinthians 12, he says, Paul says, For even as the body is one and yet has many members and all members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit we are all baptized into the body. We are baptized by the Spirit into the body of Christ at the moment of faith. And so whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, we and we were all made to drink of one Spirit, for the body is not one member but many. We are all part of the body of Christ. We have all entered into him by faith through Spirit baptism. 
we have entered through that door of faith, that door of Christ. John 10, Jesus says, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it more abundantly. This has present effects on us. Our salvation holds us securely, and it also prepares us for the work of this life. John 10, 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. This is the double grip of Jesus Christ and God the Father, the eternal security of the believer. Held not by our own works, but by the completed work of Christ. With access through faith alone. Paul says to the Philippian jailer, when he asks, sirs, what must I do to be saved? The simple answer, believe in the Lord Jesus. And you will be saved, you and your household. The offer was available not just to the individual, but to all who might believe. And so we see that when Noah is accompanied by his family, the ark of preservation, which preserved them physically, was prepared by his faith working together with his actions. And by it, his whole family was preserved physically. But it was the individual faith of each member in getting on to the ark that demonstrates their eternal salvation. Not because they got on the ark, but because they had the faith that got them onto the ark. That faith that also promised them life after the ark. Remember, God told Noah right at the get-go, I will establish my covenant with you. And he's going to establish that covenant with all of creation in chapter 9. You know, we're also told of a future expectation that we have in him. John 14 says, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Now, nothing in our lives is ever going to compare to what Noah underwent. His judgment was unique. His lifetime saw judgment and corruption that we will never see in our lives. But after we are taken away, that corruption will return to this earth. Nevertheless, there is still corruption. There is still persecution. There are still difficulties that we have in living this life. 
And so if Noah was able to trust in those future promises of God, and he was preserved for those future promises because God said he would, then when God makes promises like this to us, we have so much more evidence to lean on. We have God's entire history to look back on of his dealings with man to say God is faithful to his promises. We will be in that place together with him when he comes back for us. We have a place being prepared for us through the ark of salvation, which is Jesus Christ. Now I have one last parallel to make, and that is the prophetic type of Noah in the Old Testament primarily here. Actually, in both Testaments. First, in the exile. Noah's not mentioned by name that often in the Old Testament, only twice, both in the same context of Israel's exile, being carried off into Assyria, the ten northern kingdoms, in 722 BC, and carried off into Babylon, the two southern tribes, Benjamin and Judah, in 586 BC. When God said he was going to send this judgment, he corresponded that judgment with Noah. In Isaiah 54, he writes, This is like the days of Noah to me, when I swore that the waters of Noah would not flood the earth again. So I have sworn that I will not be angry with you, nor will I rebuke you, for the mountains may be removed and the hills may shake, but my loving kindness will not be removed from you. My covenant of peace will not be shaken, says the Lord who has compassion on you. Now Israel is about to be judged. This is a promise that despite their judgments, God is not going to turn away from them. They have turned away from him. He is going to shake them. They will return to him as a remnant. <clears throat> In Ezekiel, uh, once these exiles had actually happened, God again invokes Noah's name. It says, Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, if a country sins against me, by committing unfaithfulness, and I stretch out my hand against it, destroy its supply of bread, send famine against it, and cut off from it both man and beast, even though these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in its midst, by their own righteousness they could only deliver themselves, declares the Lord God. He makes the same declaration about a different means. See, notice he's never sending a flood. But if his hand is stretched out against them and he sends wild beasts, not even Noah's righteousness could save other people. Same with a sword. God sent the sword or warfare against this country. They would not be spared by someone else's righteousness. Or a plague. Noah, Daniel, and Job, none of them could save someone else by their righteousness. They could never deliver either their sons or their daughters. They would deliver only themselves by their righteousness. That righteousness which comes through faith. See, the issue in Israel was faith. They had turned their backs on God. And so Ezekiel 14.21, again, talking about the 
coming uh, or about the exile. For thus says the Lord God, how much more when I send my four severe judgments against Jerusalem, sword, famine, wild beasts, and plague to cut off man and beast from it. God's saying he's going to destroy Jerusalem. He's going to wipe it clean. We see here the same principle that he used with Noah. Yet behold, survivors will be left in it, who will be brought out. Both sons and daughters, behold, they are going to come forth to you. You will see their conduct and actions. Then you will be comforted for the calamity which I have brought against Jerusalem for everything which I have brought upon it. So even in judgment, God provides salvation. Israel was brought down into Egypt where they grew into a nation so that when they came into the promised land, they had been strengthened. God pulled out a remnant from Judah and brought them to Babylon where they were preserved and eventually allowed to return. God protects his remnant, and this goes back to a promise he makes in Deuteronomy 30. Now this is looking forward to an ultimate return. But in order to have an ultimate return, you need something to return. So this preservation lasts throughout Israel's history. The Lord your God will restore you from captivity and have compassion on you, and he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. Even from the creation of Israel, God foresaw the judgment of Israel. It won't be that many months before we're in Genesis 12 and Genesis 15 where we see God had already set aside a period of judgment on them. Here in Deuteronomy, we get their entire future history of cycles of judgment. They will undergo all of them and when they have undergone all of them, they will be refined as if in a furnace. One third of them will believe the other two-thirds will be cut off and perish. That's Zechariah 12. <clears throat> now, this is a really fancy word. I had to look on the thesaurus for a long time to find another X word here. The extirpation. <laughs> this is just destruction. Cataclysm. But it's a very specific judgment that Israel undergoes in the first century A.D., See, in Deuteronomy, that generation which Moses wrote Genesis to, they are also told, you shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. One from among your countrymen, you shall set as a king over yourselves. You may not put a foreigner over yourselves who is not your countryman. God is preparing a kingdom that will eventually grow into a kingdom that rules over the whole world. He begins here in Deuteronomy 17 to restore the created order of a single federal head over the entire creation. He begins in a microcosm, and he is going to use the seed of Israel to stand as king over the universe so they can't put a foreigner over themselves. That would corrupt the kingdom. And you see they have one from themselves who arrives in about 6 BC 
and he is born to be a king. You get Magi from Babylon arriving, asking for this king. Even they paid attention to Daniel's prophecies that there would be a Messiah prince born about 490 years after the decree to rebuild the temple. So when it gets to about 460 years after that prophecy, they go looking for him. It's a long time to rely on the word of God. And he has arrived. They do find him. And eventually he goes to Israel offering that kingdom that they were told they would receive back in Deuteronomy 17. This speaks to all of us because eventually this kingdom will rule over us as well. Jesus comes preaching words that would probably send shivers up anyone's spine. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. That is a fulfillment of prophecy all the way back to creation. It stands as the pinnacle of history. A recreation. A promise of what is coming after the judgment. But they did not receive it. It's been postponed. They did not believe. Their faith did not work with their actions because they had no faith. And so in Matthew 23 and verse 13, after that rejection is finalized, Jesus speaking to the Pharisees says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people, for you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. <clears throat> they are not preachers of righteousness in their generation. They are pointing away from the ark of salvation that is Christ Jesus. They are saying, don't go in that way. We've got a better way. Ultimately, this leads to them being swept up in a catastrophic judgment. Matthew 23, 37 through 39 prophesies what will come of Israel now that they have rejected the king. Jesus says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Behold your house, which speaks of the temple to the Jews. Behold your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you from now on, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The temple in Israel is the pinnacle of their religious system. Without the pinnacle, now the Sabbath has become the core, the center of their religious sphere. But the temple was the primary sphere of their religious cult. And I use cult in the dictionary sense there. The destruction of the temple was a tearing down of the very fabric of Judaism. This was the penalty, the punishment for rejecting the Messiah. But we look back at God's promises still. Romans 11 reminds us of these promises. Paul is exercising that faith rest drill. He's looking back at his promises 
that he has given to Israel, and he's saying, I'm still holding on to those promises. That is still what I am living by. That is still why I am working. Because God's promises are still working. I say then, has God not rejected his people? Or has God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know that the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel, Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have torn down your altars, and I alone am left. And they are seeking my life. Elijah is looking around and saying, am I the only one left? Are there even fewer of me than Noah had? But what is the divine response to Elijah, Paul asks? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. A remnant of 7,000 Jews back in the day of Elijah. That is what sprouted into Israel of Paul's day. And so he correlates that to the future here. In the same way, or actually to the present time, in the same way then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. He is not talking of all of Israel here. He is talking of the Israel of God. The Israel of God are those Jews who have placed their faith in the Messiah. Those Jews who will not undergo the judgment of 70 AD. They will not undergo that destruction. They are being preserved as Noah was. And they are preserved through their faithfulness, their obedience to what God says says to them. We don't get a lot of history of what happened in 70 AD in Scripture. Most of Scripture was written before 70 AD, with the sole exception of John's five books. But we do have a historical record of what happened, and we do know what Scriptures they had at the time. And the book of Hebrews was written for the express purpose of telling the Jews to escape the judgment that is coming upon the Jews. They escape it by not acting as if they are still part of them, separating themselves, leaning on Christ, the fulfillment of the law, rather than fitting into society by acting as if they are still under the law of Moses. Those who continued to act like they were under the law of Moses, still using the temple, the physical temple, rather than the temple of Christ, worshiping in spirit and truth. Those were the ones who were destroyed. Arnold Fruchtenbaum here quotes, synthesizing what we learned from Josephus' history and Eusebius' history about the destruction of the temple. When the first Jewish revolt against Rome broke out in the year AD 66, the entire Messianic community, the Israel of God, in Jerusalem, numbering over 20,000 believers, crossed the Jordan River and escaped to Pella, one of the ten cities of the Decapolis, located south of the Sea of Galilee, but on the east side of the Jordan and thus outside of the war zone. Other Messianic Jews from Judea, Galilee and the Golan Heights joined the Jewish believers from Jerusalem. By the war's end in AD 70, 
a total of 1,100,000 Jews were killed, and 97,000 were taken into slavery. However, according to records available at the present time, not a single Jewish believer died in the revolt. Ultimately, those who were vacillating apparently heeded the warnings of the letter to the Hebrews. They listened to the word of God given to them by one of the only books in scripture that we don't know who even wrote it. They received it. They received it as the word of God. They heeded the warning that destruction is coming and they got out. There is a future judgment yet to come. And it again is still one of the oldest promises. We see it in Deuteronomy as well. But it's clear here in Daniel. After the 62 weeks of the Messiah, or the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. There has to be a city and a sanctuary to destroy. The temple will be rebuilt, and its end will come with a flood. Now, this is not an allusion to the flood of Noah. Uh, The flood of Noah is the Mabul, and remember, that is a a, a specific term used for the flood. This is Shatok, which is uh, just a torrent. Uh, So this will come with overwhelming force. Even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined. Destruction, cataclysms. He will make a firm covenant. Remember, God promised Noah, I'm going to make you a covenant. God makes covenants with Israel. Israel is under covenants with God. God is saying, there's coming another one. He's going to make a covenant with you. You're going to make a covenant with him. It will be for one week, one set of seven But in the middle of that week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. On the wings of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction. One that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. He is going to bring about corruption. God is going to destroy that corruption. That is how the end comes. That one whom they will make a covenant with. Even Jesus knew he was coming. Jesus warned them that he is coming. In John 5, he says, I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. The King of God's choosing is here offering the kingdom of heaven, and you reject him. And so he says, if another comes in his own name, you will receive him. Now in Greek, there's multiple different ways to make a... uh, a conditional clause. This one points towards emphasized certainty. It's called a third-class conditional. That means the conditional clause, the if, is in the uh, subjunctive tense, and then the future, indicative apodosis, what will happen if. So the if, if another comes, you will receive him, These two together work to say this is going to happen. A third class conditional. The same exact structure is used a few chapters later in John 8, so you can see this kind of certainty actually playing out in doctrine we're familiar with. If the Son makes you free, 
you will be free indeed. This is not a this might happen. This is a this happens. The sun makes you free. You are free indeed. Jesus knows there is another coming. Another coming in his own name, not in the name of God. Israel is going to accept him, although they rejected Jesus. They rejected the Messiah, the king of God's choosing. And the result is destruction. But God will preserve a remnant. In Revelation 12, 14, this is the midpoint, the halfway point in the week prophesied by Daniel. The two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman. The woman here is a picture of Israel so that she could fly into the wilderness to her place where she was nourished for a time, times and half a time, three and a half years from the presence of the serpent. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman so that he might cause her to be swept away with the flood. But the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and drank up the river which the dragon poured out of his mouth. That's a picture of God's preservation of Israel in Petra, carrying them away from the destruction of Jerusalem when the Antichrist stands in the temple, putting an end to the sacrificial system declaring himself to be God. God says at that point, run, get out of there, drop everything and leave. God is going to protect them. God is going to insulate them in Petra so that even the floodwaters of the serpent cannot touch them. Jesus says the last days will be like the days of Noah. The last days, speaking of the last seven years, speaking in the context of the Jewish last days, we have been living in the last days as the church, even since it began. The last days for us are those days in which we expect Jesus Christ to return for us. The last days for Israel is when Jesus returns to the earth. The coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying. And we know that, uh, well, even if we don't interpret the marrying as being angels and human, marry, marriage in Genesis 6 is still the stated problem. Whatever the marriage is, I believe it's angels and humans, Whatever it is, that was the cause of corruption. The correlation here between marriage is not one of, uh, as the skeptics would say, simply there were no signs. No, there were plenty of signs that the end was coming. The entire book of Revelation shows us plenty of signs that the end is coming. Nevertheless, they continued in their corruptions. They continued celebrating. We see at the midpoint of the tribulation when Israel is told to flee, that they celebrate the murder of two prophets of God. They give each other gifts. For three and a half days, they celebrate in the streets of Jerusalem the massacre of the two prophets that lay dead and drying in the streets. This is horrific. 
this is like the days of Noah. This is not like the days that we are living in. It's going to get worse. But it gets worse when we are taken away. For in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. They did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. But Israel will be saved. A remnant of Israel. But Israel nonetheless. And it will be all of Israel because the remnant will include every surviving believer. Just as it was in 70 AD. The believers were those who escaped because they were faithful to God's command to get out. The remnant of Israel will be faithful to God's command to get out. They will be saved. Paul says, I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. God is not yet done with Israel. And so all Israel will be saved. All Israel will be saved. That does not mean every single individual, but the Israel of God, those who survived to the end because they believed in him and accepted his protection. Those will be saved, just as it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. And so Isaiah's words stand engraved in history, and we can still rely on them today. Israel has been saved by the Lord with an everlasting salvation. You will not be put to shame or humiliated to all eternity. Here's an example of a prophetic past tense. This is still yet to happen. It is as certain as done because God has declared it. For us, the promise is the same. In him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in him, spirit baptism, with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance, a guarantee, a down payment, if you will, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory, And so we can never be taken from the double grip of Jesus Christ, the Son, or God the Father. We are secure. The door is shut. We have entered through the one way, not by our own merit, but simply by faith, trusting that God provides salvation. And so the flood is one of the most pivotal historical events in all of Scripture. It sets a precedent for how God deals with judgment and salvation, he does not forsake those whom he shuts inside his protection. Let us pray. Dear Lord, we thank you that you give us these records of faithfulness. We, thank, we are thankful that we see you working even today. We know and trust that the work that you are doing in us will be perfected on the day that we see you again. When you come and collect us home, And we know that destructions are prophesied for after that time. We pray that all of Israel will be saved, just as you said. And we can trust 
that your word will come to pass. We thank you for all these things, Lord. We praise you in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.